the approaches that I've mostly talked about, the iron making approaches, whether it's electrochemical, hydrogen, hydrogen plasma, CCS on, on DRI, biomass, or really anything else that I could think of iron making could produce iron that could be qualified to put into any steel making furnace and make any steel product thereafter. So iron making technologies can be drop in. But if you're trying to disrupt the supply chain, you could think about very cool opportunities. For example, what ores make sense and have the right elements already to go directly from fine ore powder to a fine metal powder that contains not just iron, but say nickel for stainless steel or other elements that could be used in high entropy alloys or other powders that folks may really pay a lot for because you can make 3D printed parts of specialty steels. Hello and welcome to the Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public International Affairs. And today we're bringing a new angle to a topic that's near and dear to my own heart, that's green steel. Steel production accounts for around 78% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And we've got a real expert here today to talk about this topic. She's Dr. Christina Chang, partner at Lower Carbon Capital. Christina is a chemist with a PhD from Harvard who's invented technologies across nanomaterials, catalysis for mining waste remediation, thin film solar panels, solar water splitting for hydrogen production, and our topic today, sustainable steel. Now, before coming to Lower Carbon, she led federal funding for sustainable manufacturing research at the Department of Energy's in-house R&D agency for emerging energy technologies, that's ARPA-E. She was also CEO of sustainable steel startup Abraze Energy. Now, clearly, we could talk to Christina pretty much about anything in advanced manufacturing, but our focus is going to be green steel today. And so to set the scene, let's start with a little primer on steel and how it gets made. Please forgive me, this is a bit detailed, but if you're not familiar with the sector, I think it's going to help you get oriented before we dive into our conversation. All right, for our primer, I'm gonna walk you through steel making from two angles. First is the abstract processes. That is, what do you need to do to produce steel? There are really two basic steps. The first is iron making. That's taking raw iron oxides and inducing what's called a reduction reaction to strip out oxygen atoms and other impurities to produce near pure iron. The second is steel making, taking that iron alloying it with carbon, other desired metals to create crude steel. That's the steel making process. And then you can take this crude steel and process it into finished products like coils, bars, sheets, all sorts of other forms. Note though that the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions from steel take place actually in that first step, that is the iron making step. This is because the reduction reaction by which you produce iron, usually involves fossil fuels both to generate heat for the reaction and to serve as reducing agents that strip out those oxygen atoms. All right, so that's our big picture, right? You've got iron making and steel making. How does the steel industry actually carry out these steps? We're going to leave out the processing steps at the end and just focus on that transformation from iron oxides to crude steel. There are a few types of facilities and pathways that the industry uses to do this. One of the common ones is known as the integrated pathway. Here, iron making takes place in a kind of facility known as a blast furnace with coking coal as the main heat source and reductant. The molten iron produced then gets fed into basic oxygen furnaces or BOFs for steel making. Another approach is production via direct reduction of iron and electric arc furnaces. Iron making here takes place in so-called direct reduction plants. They use either natural gas or coal as the heating and reducing agent. 
And then you take those outputs and you feed them into an electric arc furnace or an EAF for steel making. EAFs notably are also really good at using scrap or recycled steel directly as their iron source in place of direct reduced iron. And since iron making is the main emissions producing step in the steel process, this scrap to EAF pathway, it produces around 75% less carbon emissions than the integrated pathway because you don't need to do all that iron production. Of course, though, you do need scrap steel in order to do it. Now, these pathways can get a little more complicated, actually a lot more complicated, and they also sometimes overlap, right? Some facilities will take iron from blast furnaces, feed it into EAFs and electric arc furnaces, for instance, but we're not gonna go into any more details. What I do wanna note is the two iron-making decarbonization solutions that are nearest to commercial readiness. One is carbon capture, carbon capture utilization and storage, or CCUS. That's putting carbon capture onto iron-making facilities, so blast furnaces and DRI plants. The other is hydrogen DRI. That's using hydrogen in DRI facilities instead of natural gas or coal. Now, if the hydrogen is produced in low carbon waste, so maybe from electrolysis from green energy or with carbon capture, then you can also cut emissions. So when you see green steel talked about, you're probably gonna see discussion of these two options, but are they enough? Well, let's hear what Christina has to say. Welcome to the Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey. I'm a PhD student in public affairs at Princeton. And today our guest is Christina Chang. She's a partner at Lower Carbon, and she's got a really interesting and really diverse background. She was a fellow at RPE, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy within the Department of Energy in the US, working on sustainable manufacturing commodities, especially green steel. She's been in startups as a CEO of a sustainable steel startup, Abraze Engineering. And she's got a PhD from Harvard in physical chemistry. And now she's bringing that to the venture world with Lower Carbon. So Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Ned. Appreciate it. Start off with a question that we always like to ask, which is what brought you to joining Lower Carbon Capital as a partner? Well, I guess two main things. And first and foremost is climate. I've been interested in sustainability as long as I can remember. I love the 8 billion people that I share this planet with and hope that they can be as prosperous as possible. And that means trying to keep our planet within livable bounds for folks and where they are in their lives. And the second reason is climate is actually a huge economic opportunity because access to technology is starting to revolutionize everything, how we travel, how we eat, how we make stuff, how we stay warm or stay cool. You probably know that wind and solar are now just cheaper than fossil and they're getting cheaper every year. And so what I'd love to kick off with is wind and solar were just the beginning. There's a revolution coming based on technology trends for every sector of the economy. Technology trends in cheap compute, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, directed evolution, new battery chemistries, and of course, gen AI and other machine learning tools. And I think that R&D in labs, academia, and startups are the biggest way to translate these technologies into impact. Right on. And I, I'm going to guess that that big transformation across the economy is what you focus on to lower carbon. Is that right? I guess focus is a broad word because there's so much in there. Yeah. At lower carbon, we have three main pillars, decarbonization, drawing greenhouse gases down from the atmosphere, and climate resilience and adaptation. Among those three, I do tend to specialize in sustainable manufacturing. Essentially, Within decarbonization, how are we going to make things in a way that's not just good for the planet and people, but also cheaper? So my portfolio as a partner includes things in critical minerals, 
decarbonized building materials, and some about electricity generation in addition, since my background was in solar PV way back when. And I think we brought you on today in particular to talk about one of those decarbonized building materials, green steel. Let's start by talking about your current portfolio at Lower Carbon. I know you guys have Electra. Is that right? Is the current green steel company in the portfolio? Yeah, that's right. We've invested in not only Electra, which is making green iron using electricity, but also Charm Industrial, which is making green iron using biomass. Oh, yeah, I've heard good things about Charm. So both Electra and Charm are using approaches that are kind of different from the main two piloted deep decarbonization technologies in steel, right? Those main two technologies are various forms of carbon capture and then applications of hydrogen for direct reduction of iron. And the idea is that when people talk about these two technologies, right, we adopt different forms of these technologies, we scale up some of our recycling of steel, we bring down some cost of process improvements, et cetera, we can meet our decarbonization needs. But a lot of your work, both as a startup founder at RPE and now bringing that lower carbon has been premised on the idea that these aren't going to be enough. What I just described is not enough to get us to net zero. So tell us more about that line of thought. Why do we need some of these new steel production pathways, the things that Charm, Electra, and the other companies that you examine and you know, why do we need them to get to net zero? Well, one of the pieces you mentioned was efficiency and process improvements. But as we all know, you can't efficiency your way to zero. Chi identity math there. And to address your other points, I'll ask you to imagine a graph. And on the x-axis is emissions, and on the y-axis is cost. And levelized cost to produce pig iron, as an example. And blast furnaces, which use coal, or direct reduced iron furnaces, which use natural gas, are high emissions, but low cost. So they're in the quadrant that is cheap, but unfortunately not sustainable. And all of the roadmap technologies that you described, hydrogen, CCS, decrease emissions, but they all add cost. So you're going along a diagonal line that puts you in this other bucket. But unfortunately, adding cost means that deployment is slow because you need to focus on other drivers, not just cost, to get folks excited to adopt this technology. What we're seeing in the startup space and emerging technologies is real technology opportunities and a huge amount of market pull in the white space of this graph that's not filled yet with dots, zero emissions, iron making and steel making, with ultra low total life cycle emissions. So emissions really are low for these technologies and the cost is just cheaper than traditional fossil-based iron and steel making. I hope that the costs come down for the technologies you've mentioned. Demos will get us down the cost curve. But honestly, still most of the technologies you've stated can't embate the entire sector because their features and resources can't be replicated in all countries. I know there are so many different pathways out there, but give us a sense of the ones that you really think are really interesting in this white space. And what are going to be the keys for separating winners and losers as you see it right now? I'd really describe a portfolio approach, just like there's no one iron making company or steel making company today, but there are a few dependent on the various resources and geographies. So too will be iron and steel making of the future. So let's talk about a few of those parameters. For example, today, Midrex and HYL lead in direct reduced iron making where natural gas is cheap. The US is a big example of that, Iran and, and other places. 
blast furnaces obviously make more sense where coal is still available and cheap. That is fewer and fewer places. And there is a transition happening there. In fact, there's already been a transition in steelmaking from BOF furnaces to EAFs as electricity has become cheaper and they've been able to make various steel products that are competitive with BOF steel. Sorry, if I just take it, the BOF is basic oxygen furnace, EAF is electric arc furnace. Is that right? So moving to a steelmaking process that relies upon electricity is the final transformation from iron to steel. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. EAFs do still use some fossil inputs to go faster, basically to heat up more quickly. You chuck in various forms of carbon, but that could be biocarbon and electricity is still the majority of the energy use in pretty much all EAFs, but the balance is tricky. So anyway, that's just to paint the picture that even in the United States, there's a diversity of approaches. And so too, will there be a diversity of approaches dependent on geography? I'll give an example of what's happening in DRI. D, direct, essentially refers to the fact that the iron pellet doesn't get melted in the process. It stays solid the whole time. And that means you don't have melting as an opportunity to phase separate out the different materials. Namely, in the iron ore, it can be more or less pure. You can have just iron oxides. You can also have what's called gang. So essentially impurities that are mostly silica, other rocks, high melting rocks. And that's less valuable in general, and especially it's not supposed to be in your in your steel product. So you have to beneficiate the ore to make it a very low gang material in order to do a direct reduced iron making process or face the consequences on the back end and somehow get the gang out, you know, post iron making. So countries where high purity iron ore is available, for example, the Nordic countries will be able to take more advantage of direct reduced iron approaches. For example, the hydrogen-based direct reduced iron approach you mentioned. However, this type of ore is available on the order of 5% of global iron ore. So extra beneficiation on the front end will be needed, but that adds cost and adds processing steps, et cetera. So there will be a collection of approaches, again, that makes sense and probably melting. Or what I'm hoping for is some other cheap and not fossil using approach will be available for the rest of the world that doesn't have super high quality iron ore. So when you're talking about these other pathways, I mean, you've got electrochemical approaches, you have bringing biomass into the picture. How do you categorize the other things that could be in that white space? Yeah, I'm a chemist, as you know, so I'm sorry if this gets pretty nerdy, but you have to imagine, well, okay, where is the energy coming from? So actually, let me back up. You dig up iron ore and it's iron oxide, and you want to turn that into iron. That's a redox process, turning iron 2 plus and 3 plus cations that are in a compound form with oxygen into iron metal, iron zero. So as a chemist, I'm thinking about what is the driving force for that redox reaction? And then steel typically essentially comes later. Once you've made iron in a way that is well-suited to doing that redox process, then you transform this iron or various forms of iron, which is to say various physical form factors. There are various impurities still in there. For example, some carbon is in pig iron. Then you transform that into steel. So you have an iron-making furnace and then a steel-making furnace. You put iron ore into the first one and iron comes out. You put iron into the second one and steel comes out. If you look at the global landscape of greenhouse gas emissions from the very upstream mining, essentially, 
to the very downstream, which is a final product like a tin coated steel soup can or the fork that you are using to eat lunch while listening to this podcast, there are a large number of steps in this value chain. And the analysis work that I did at ERPA-E was to quantify emissions and energy use at each step, relying on the great work of others. So the largest emissions single step is that iron making step. You have emissions from the chemical process of adding carbon to that iron oxide, and it becomes the reducing agent and gets the oxygen off the ore and produces process emissions, CO2. And you have the heating part where fossil fuels are combusted, releasing CO2, just to get the heat to make that reaction go. So when I think about alternatives, I typically focus on the iron making step because that's the largest single source of emissions. It's about 5% of emissions globally is just due to this iron making step. And I tend to think about where is the energy coming from for that redox process? And where is the energy coming from for that heat? So that's the context. When I think about categorizing these uh, technologies, I think of it in terms of where can energy come from more generally. And it's not dissimilar, honestly, to how we get energy for any manufacturing process or in fact, any human process. Either you have electricity or you have a thermochemical reaction. So I am pretty excited about electrochemical iron making and pretty excited about thermochemical iron making and biomass-based iron making goes into that thermochemical bucket. I'll also say that there's a third category for me that's somewhat overlapping, which is not just where do we get the energy for these processes from, but what are techniques that circumvent the value chain that I have described? Can you go from mining or directly to steel without needing to pass through an iron making furnace. Something that's pretty disruptive innovation that could do quote process intensification, essentially eliminate some large number of steps in the overall process for various reasons, including emissions reasons. But ultimately, yeah, you can imagine national security reasons for this as well as a lot of the steel making value chain is in other countries right now, but a lot of the products are used here. So the US used to make essentially all of its steel here. And now that's only true for about two thirds of our steel. So there are a variety of approaches that we can use to essentially rebootstrap a set of new products here in the United States and think through how that ultimately translates to new processes that will be more competitive than national competitors. That's an exciting mix of different strategies. Right? We've got electrochemical mixture of different thermal uh, separation strategies, and then also some of these direct from ore mined to steel approaches. Obviously, the goal, as you brought it from the start, is we want to bring these things down the cost curve and beat the existing approaches on a combination of cost and emissions fronts, right? Because the existing approaches that we've piloted so far, CCUS, hydrogen with direct reduced iron, these are ones that add a cost premium. So how do we bring down that green premium for these technologies right now? Where are we at over in that white space and those different approaches that you've described? And how do we bring those costs closer to and beat out the cost drivers in these other more familiar decarbonization strategies. Yeah. And especially for folks who are interested in developing some of those technologies, I'm happy to share a framework for how I think about it. So 
in looking at the levelized cost of equivalent product, maybe that's iron or maybe you're going ore to steel with the same assumption basis, e.g. the same electricity price in the area of the world you're trying to deploy, the same capital recovery factor, essentially the mechanics about how can you get money to finance your plants. You want to hit cost parity with the way we make steel today. And there are numbers from the IEA, just email me. I'm happy to share an Excel spreadsheet I have that essentially pulls those out. But you can find these numbers online that show this levelized cost stack for blast furnace and for direct reduced iron making. And what you'll see is that ore and energy are driving components of that. CapEx comes in third, basically. So if you share the cost components of ore and energy, then the way that you get cheaper is CapEx. The other tricky part is most of these furnaces, their capital has already been paid off because they've been running for more than 20 or 30 years. So if you hit, quote, greenfield parity, that means your levelized cost stack looks the same as or lower than this cost stack I've been describing. What would be even more game changer would be hitting brownfield parity or, quote, shutdown parity. Although I don't like to use that word because the existing iron and steel makers are still very much part of the solution, especially by the ways you described. But, quote, shutdown parity would mean the OPEX of an existing, say, blast furnace is more expensive than the levelized CapEx plus OPEX of a new technology type. And at that point, it makes sense to shut down, decommission the existing furnace and switch to building and operating a new technology. Now, to do that, as I imagine, you'll probably want to make cost reductions, not just in the levelized cost of CapEx, but also in input costs, namely energy cost and ore cost. And so there are exciting ways to do that. And the style of thinking is what gets us very excited about Electra and Charm and the other folks, broadly speaking, that we're working with, because if it just makes sense to switch, this is a wonderful way forward for existing iron and steel makers who have all of the bells and whistles necessary to make steel mill products. I mean, they have the rest of the landscape covered. And so a drop-in iron making solution that just makes sense on a cost basis is a win for everybody. That said, of course, there are approaches where startups don't want their technology to be acquired or licensed and they're going forward themselves. Of course, from that perspective, you may be interested in looking at emerging markets. So in the United States, we've roughly leveled out at demanding 130 megatons of steel per year, but there are many markets where the steel demand is growing year on year quite strongly. So it's a reason why we can't necessarily rely on just recycling. And it's also a huge opportunity for technology leapfrogging. Can we make sure that the new iron making and steel making furnaces of folks that need it the most to develop their first and second waves of industry can do so on the back of technology that doesn't also cost us the planet? Yeah, no kidding. I think that that focus on decarbonizing steel outside of developed markets is really important. You know, I mean, 75% of global apparent steel use is in the developing world because it's a thing that you use when you're growing an economy fast. It's very investment intensive economy, doing a lot of urbanization, building, things like that. And steel is not a commodity. There's some trade of it globally, but a lot of that trade is pretty regional. And so we're going to have to make a lot of steel in the future in the developing world in much lower cost forms. 
Yeah. I mean, Ned, you just really hit the nail on the head. Steel being a commodity is a shorthand that folks use and is appropriate in some contexts, but I completely agree steel is not a commodity. One of the reasons for that is there are thousands upon thousands of different varieties of steels and compositions and morphologies of the grain structure. And so they differ depending on the intended application. Is it conductive? Is it high strength for automotive, et cetera? So yeah, you can't just trade this stuff as if it's all the same. The trade does often happen locally. Folks are trying to get exactly, to produce exactly what is needed. And so you don't necessarily see a ton of swapping around the wrong things. So I'm excited that our green iron making teams are thinking about where they'll be sited. Will they be sited near the mines or near labor centers that are close enough to the mines? I mean, these are really important considerations. Working conditions at mines can be pretty awful and can be fly in, fly out. And so you can drive off the oxygens right there, but you need people running that equipment or can it be more or less automated? These are all important questions and Working with the fabulous team at ARC, but EU, we ran some life cycle analysis to try to understand, okay, should you do iron making and, you know, for example, Australia or Brazil, which enjoy still pretty high purity iron ore and ship iron to the United States for steel making here, or should raw steel be made there and processing happen here? And it's all an important conversation. And there are a lot of ways forward. Building on that, one of the things you brought up there was the fact that steel is not a commodity in part because there's so many different steels. There's so many different uses of steel that we have. Does that also affect the mix of technology solutions we have for decarbonizing it? As in, can a hydrogen DRI approach produce the same qualities of steel or have the same attributes of steel as a blast furnace approach? Can an electrochemical approach produce the same? Is there going to be some mixing and matching where there's specialization for certain kinds of steel based upon certain kinds of production pathways? So that's a great question. And that's kind of where I would separate out the like pure iron making plays from the disrupting the supply chain methods because iron atoms are iron atoms. That said, steel arranges the iron atoms in grains in certain ways. And so if you're making iron and that can basically be qualified to dump into any steel making furnace, whether it's EAF or BOF. So the approaches that I've mostly talked about the iron making approaches, whether it's electrochemical, hydrogen, hydrogen plasma, CCS on, on DRI, biomass, or really anything else that I could think of iron making could produce iron that could be qualified to put into any steel making furnace and make any steel product thereafter. That qualification may mean removing certain impurities. So you got to think about the ore that you're buying and whether your process, your chemicals, you know, whatever introduces any other compositional elements. But once you put it in a steel-making furnace and, and melt it, you can form the right morphology, the right products out of that. So iron-making technologies can be drop-in, but if you're trying to disrupt the supply chain, then yes, you could think about very cool opportunities. For example, what ores make sense and have the right elements already to go directly from fine ore powder to a fine metal powder that contains not just iron, but say nickel for stainless steel or other elements that could be used in high entropy alloys or other powders that folks may really pay a lot for because you can make 3D printed parts of specialty steels, for example. From that perspective, yes, the inputs and the iron making technology may really impact the final product, but that's again, because you're skipping the whole integrated steel making steps. 
That makes sense. Important reminder to always just be thinking when you're talking about steel, keep those stages separate, iron making, the steel making. Yeah. These aren't just metallurgy terms that may feel archaic. They actually, of course, refer to important technology steps and important transformations. So I want to go back a little bit to cost premiums. You had talked about bringing down cost premiums in your framework across inputs, whether it's ore energy, and then also CapEx. One of the major drivers of large-scale cost declines in other green technologies, particularly in the CapEx area, has been modularity, right? It enables learning by doing, where you produce thousands and thousands of solar cells or batteries or wind turbine components, and you can experiment as you go along to figure out the cheapest ways to produce them. Now, when I think about steel, I think about really big facilities, really high capital investment plants, That's less true with EAFs, but certainly for the very traditional kind of blast furnaces, those are huge things. When you think about the whole landscape, both these more traditional approaches for decarbonizing steel, carbon capture, DRI with hydrogen, and then also these newer approaches that you guys are particularly excited about, how does modularity fit in there? Can it apply to steel or is there another way that the sector iron and steel making is going to have to deliver cost reductions? Yeah, it's a really well-formulated question. So... As you've already articulated, right, the integrated steel making value chain or beneficiation, iron making, steel making, hot or cold rolling, various milling steps, mill product, it was built on a logic of decreasing cost with ever greater scale and thermal integration. As you say, some of these blast furnaces can be 12 megatons per year. I mean, these things are huge. But I also believe there are a number of new technology concepts that do cost effectively trade off that integration for instead modular design and time-flexible processing or material-flexible processing. And of course, modular deployment will ease the industry's transition and hopefully accelerate it as folks in emerging markets can add in modular chunks. And so that style of thing, namely modular deployment, is the type of thing that will help us start coming down the deployment performance and cost learning curve as soon as we can. Whether you can do this modularly depends on the technology type. So an electro-winning style iron-making approach, electrolysis, makes sense as an example. We do electrolysis today at relatively large scale via turning bauxite into aluminum. And the modularity there is very apparent. I was in Iceland on honeymoon a couple of weeks ago, and we drove by an aluminum smelter and timed it because we knew we were driving like 90 kilometers an hour in this rental car and basically counted one 1,000, two 1,000. This thing was about a mile long, this pot line. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. And that just shows how much of dorks we are. Our kids are going to be such dorks. But you get the idea. You can have 92 pots in a single facility as opposed to making one, you know, 92x large pot. Why? Because electrode-based electrochemical transformations are scale in 2D, right? They scale on surface area. So scaling them larger has pros and cons, but it's not like a, a thermochemical process which scales in 3D for various reasons. So in a similar way to aluminum smelting, where you can scale out instead of scaling up, so too you can imagine doing that for electrolytic iron making. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. You mentioned being in Iceland, seeing aluminum smelters there. Uh, I got two last things I want to ask about. One, one is on you know, this geography of steel innovation, iron making and steel making innovation. How do you find being in the venture world in the US, but also probably talking to players who are from all over the world and following innovation communities in this sector outside of the US, how are different regions thinking differently about steel innovation? My own bias, I always just think about China because I work on China in large part and it produces more than half of the world's steel, but that's also probably the hardest to get any access to. So I'm just curious more generally, how do different regions think differently about steel innovation? Are there any things that are distinctive about what folks are focusing on in the US? Maybe I'll start with a little bit of a history lesson, which you're already familiar with. Of course, like I mentioned earlier, the U.S. used to make most of its steel domestically, and this was largely driven by wartime reasons. The U.S.'s metallurgy departments in academia were the best in the world, and talent here was very high. But I mean, just go to Wikipedia and look at that graph. What you'll see is that the amount of steel that we make yearly has dropped off dramatically, and unfortunately a lot of that metallurgy expertise and world leadership piece was in some sense passed off to Korea and Japan. We went over there in the 60s and 70s, helped them set up their iron making and steel making facilities, and then a little bit dropped off. Today, the US only makes two thirds of its steel. The rest is imported. And all of the metallurgy departments have become material science and engineering departments. Basically, there are probably a few metallurgy departments left. In fact, I have dear friends at many, I won't name them all here on the pod, but you know, there are still absolute experts here, but it has gone up dramatically, especially as the United States has not prioritized industrial policy. And so there hasn't been as much support even necessarily for domestic procurement, of course, until now. So right since late 2021, we've got the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, and of course, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that probably $2 trillion plus dollars will help revitalize manufacturing in this country. And that will include the folks waiting in the wings, lurking, who have been developing wonderful technologies in ferrous and non-ferrous alloys and staying afloat and ahead of the curve, but not really translating their technology necessarily into our aging steel infrastructure. And we'll hopefully support and grow that talent base, especially as you know the United States really does lead in so many other areas of technology. So I mentioned battery chemistries up front at the start of the podcast, right? We have learned more about electrochemistry you know, in the past 40 years than we would have imagined. And part of that is due to, of course, cross-functional applications. A lot of that can be ported into various new technology options, including in manufacturing, including in iron making and steel making. I will say as well, the United States is a special place because two-thirds of our steel today is recycled. And so that's where EAFs come in and, and play a large role. We're a developed nation. Steel is already 85% recycled in the United States. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And of course, that's 50 megatons of end-of-life steel, and it can't meet our 130 megaton steel demand. So circularity is part of the solution, but it's not necessarily where the biggest climate impact will be made. And I do think that will be in decarbonized iron making. The rest of the world is more of an emerging story. China produces maybe 55% of the world's steel, and most of that it keeps for itself because, of course, it's needed to meet growing population demands, et cetera. So how we think about this in venture, may have already mentioned this, you absolutely need to be thinking about, can my technology 
be used where it's most needed and where it's most needed for decarbonization. So we are thinking about, for example, markets in Africa, for example, markets in India, where there are huge opportunities to technology leapfrog and make a big dent on climate emissions that otherwise are set to happen. India's plans for expanding its steelmaking, continuing largely with its reliance upon coal as both a reducing agent in DRI, but also in blast furnaces could quadruple its emissions for steel over the next 30 years. So these are the kind of things where finding those alternative solutions to maybe make technology leapfrog possible sooner is really, really valuable. I want to ask one last question here which is just more stepping back. You've got a really interesting mix of experience, right? You've been a founder, you worked in the federal government on energy information. Now you're a venture capitalist. You also have a PhD in physical chemistry. So uh, you talked about the IRA and how it's injecting a lot of government money into supporting the clean tech transition. How would you assess the state of that entrepreneur, academia, government venture cooperation in the US around the clean tech transition? What do we do well and what could we do better? So that's a great question. I would say with the pretty landmark legislation pieces that have happened over the past couple of years, it is definitely getting better. And what that means for us as leading climate tech investors is that it supercharges everything that we do. So I will say that a 10-year time horizon from the IRA, for example, that doesn't do anything for your nth of a kind plant. So your economics still need to pencil out for us to invest And I wouldn't say that the IRA has necessarily completely changed the areas we invest in at all, although there are some new opportunities, for example, like exchanging carbon credits, right, that didn't exist when there were no carbon credits. But largely speaking, what we really see as being game changer is helping the economics for pilots, for demos, for that first of a kind plant. So if folks can get to that end of a kind economics by using the IRA, that's really great. I also think that the focus on creating new investment opportunities for domestic supply chains is extremely important. That also needs to be followed up with some articulation of willingness to pay, or if there's no green premium anywhere, that's important to understand because it's nice to hope that public procurement dollars will be based on policy. And we can't imagine that it's going to be based on cost. This just is really not what has been shown. For example, with the price fluctuations of rare earths for the past 30 years, we rely on rare earths, DOD relies on rare earths, and they know that they're buying it from China and they just don't want to pay more for other sources, right? Even other Australian sources, for example, they do not want to pay a premium. So I'm not sure if we'll see that change, but as investors, we don't forecast a change. And that means parity or basically cheaper economics are what is paramount. I will also say though, that we invest in carbon drawdown, like I said, drawing down greenhouse gas emissions. In steel, you're paying for a piece of steel, but also you know, lower emissions. And I'm saying that no one will pay for lower emissions at scale, right? In carbon drawdown, you don't have a piece of steel to go with your carbon credit. You only have the fact that you have averted emissions. And so is anybody going to pay for that? It's essentially the difference between a market that exists and putting a cheaper, better alternative into it versus creating a market that doesn't yet exist, but we know is there because of the huge demand signals that we're getting because of policy ultimately, and because of the public facing nature of large corporates and the climate impact that they need to have for their stakeholders. They have robust 2030 and 2050 targets and no idea how to get there. And 
abatement technologies will be needed to make up the difference between the technologies that will have been developed by 2030 and the targets that they're setting. So it's an all hands on deck approach. That's so interesting. I think that particularly that distinction between the drawdown industries and the industries that are not drawdown, so to speak, the ones with the tangible kind of output, the way the government of support for those differs. I think there's a lot of discussion policy communities around public procurement of green materials. And I think what you're underscoring here is just that we really, we don't do a lot of that. And it's not something that you really on the venture side want to count on at all. So while certainly there's progress to be made on that, it's sobering. Well, look, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Christina. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Christina for joining. If you like this episode, please spread the good word. You can find us on Twitter or I guess X, Twitter, at Wharton Current, and also on Instagram at The Wharton Current. And if you'd like to get in touch with Christina, just shoot me a message at edmund.downey at princeton.edu and we can connect you. Now, over on our side, we got the semester starting up again here. We got a bunch of podcasts in the pipeline, topics from hydrogen to sustainability reporting, so it should be a busy fall. Stay tuned.